This show is a part of the podcast network of the Walled Garden Philosophical Society, an international community of philosophers and seekers dedicated to the pursuit of truth, wisdom, virtue, and the divine, wherever they may be found. To find out more, go to thewalledgarden.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Soul Searching with Seneca. Today we're going to be finishing off letter number 21 on the renown my writings will bring you. And in this section of the letter, verses 7 through to the end, Seneca is giving his uh, final quote from Epicurus, uh, his payment for the day. Uh, and, uh, and so I'm going to read these and we'll sort of dive in and see what we can take away from these few verses. So he says, quote, In order that Idiomenius may not be introduced free of charge into my letter, he shall make up the indebtedness from his own account. It was to him that Epicurus addressed the well-known saying, urging him to make Pythicles rich, but not rich in the vulgar and equivocal way. If you wish, said he, to make Pythicles rich, do not add to his store of money, but subtract from his desires. This idea is too clear to need explanation, and too clever to need reinforcement. There is, however, one point on which I would warn you. Not to consider that this statement applies only to riches. Its value will be the same no matter how you apply it. If you wish to make Pythicles honourable, do not add to his honours, but subtract from his desires. If you wish to make Pythicles have pleasure forever, do not add to his pleasures, but subtract from his desires. If you wish to make Pythicles an old man, filling his life to the full, do not add to his years, but subtract from his desires. There is no reason why you should hold that these words belong to Epicurus alone. They are public property. I think we ought to do in philosophy as they are wont to do in the Senate. When someone has made a motion, of which I approve to a certain extent, I ask him to make his motion in two parts, and I vote for the part which I approve. So I am all the more glad to repeat the distinguished words of Epicurus, in order that I may prove to those who have recourse to him through a bad motive, thinking that they will have in him a screen for their own vices, that they must live honourably no matter what school they follow. Go to his garden and read the motto carved there. Stranger, here you will do well to tarry. Here our highest good is pleasure. The caretaker of that abode, a kindly host, will be ready for you. He will welcome you with a barley meal and serve you water also in abundance. With these words, Have you not been well entertained? This garden, he says, does not whet your appetite, it quenches it. Nor does it make you more thirsty with every drink. It slakes the thirst by a natural cure, a cure that demands no fee. This is the pleasure in which I have grown old. In speaking with you, however, I refer to those desires which refuse alleviation, which must be bribed to cease. For in regard to the exceptional desires, which may be postponed, which may be chastened and checked, I have this one thought to share with you, 
A pleasure of that sort is according to our nature, but it is not according to our needs. One owes nothing to it. Whatever is expended upon it is a free gift. The belly will not listen to advice. It makes demands. It opportunes. And yet it is not a troublesome creditor. You can send it away at small cost, provided only that you give it what you owe, not merely all that you are able to give. Farewell. End quote. All right, so there's a lot to go through here, but ultimately there is a common theme in here that we see through so much of Seneca's writings. I'm sure you've all guessed it. It is desire. Seneca loves talking about desire, and he loves talking about the nature of desire and what it does to us and uh, and how we can potentially uh, change the way that we look at the world around us in order uh, to get, say, the, uh, the things that we believe we want out of life, but in a natural way, not in a kind of grass or desperate way that we often act in life. And so the first idea that he gives us here is this one from Epicurus, right? Uh, now, many of us actually attribute this idea to the Stoics, but, you know, Seneca really respects Epicurus because he's got some great ideas, which is one of them is uh, if you want somebody to get rich, you know, you've got two ways. You can either pile up riches around them, give them more, uh, or you can actually change their desires. You can uh, can kind of get them to desire less. And this is actually, it turns out to be true. And it turns out that Seneca also thinks that this is true of pretty much anything that we could uh, desire in life, that ultimately what we need to do is to come back and, and reserve our desires only for the goods of the soul, goods of the character. That is the place where we can actually truly desire something and get it in the moment and receive the true gifts uh, that, uh, that are all within us, you know. And so, you know, according to the Stoics, uh, what you need in life is not to be found in uh, grasping onto external objects or, or money or fame or all of these things that one day are with you and the next are gone. It's to be found by finding that inner solitude, that inner fortitude, uh, that, that relationship with yourself where you understand that you have the ability in each moment to order your decisions to the best of your reasoning faculties, to have the best possible character, to, to live an honorable life. You know, these are all essentials to the Stoic when it comes to living uh, a meaningful, flourishing existence. And so it's certainly an interesting idea, right? You know, let's say that you wanted to have a certain feeling in life that might be associated with having wealth. Now, you could think about it in those two ways. You could go on that path and try to obtain the external wealth uh, and to fulfill those feelings uh, through that manner. Um, and of course, the Stoics would say, well, that's not going to be a real fulfillment of those of those desires, because as soon as, like Seneca has said, you know, as soon as you have that money in your hands, you're just going to desire something else, right? And it turns out that, you know, the thing about human beings is we are hardwired to be aiming creatures. We're always aiming at something. But one of the assumptions that we often make is that that aiming has to be towards something external to us. It has to be towards a promotion or, or a job or, you know, uh, extra money or, um, you know, whatever it is, a nice new car, a nice new home, new relationship. But the thing about our aiming nature as human beings is that we can actually turn that aiming nature to look with within us and to say, well, just how honorable could I become? How virtuous could I become? 
how connected with the cosmos could I become? This is why we have, you know, religions. I mean, religions teach us in a way to to look deeper within ourselves and say, hey, there's there's actually a spiritual path that you can go on within yourself that is just as fulfilling, if not way more fulfilling, uh, than the path that you might go on outside, you know, in the external world. And that's in a way what the Stoics are doing as well. They're saying, hey, why don't you turn that focus inward, look within yourself, and you will find that there is a path that you can go on within your being that you can actually right now see the benefits of, and you can walk that path and uh, and make some real amazing achievements within yourself that absolutely change the way that you feel in your life and, and lead to a flourishing existence. And this is why I always tell my clients, you know, Many people have a misconception about Stoicism that it teaches you to to not have ambition, to to not have desire. It actually it's not it's not about that. It's about changing your ambitions, changing your desires to uh, to 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 an inward focus, to desire the goods of your soul, to desire the goods of your character. You know, to aim at the highest possible good in your being. And as you do this, there will naturally be an outpouring of the goods of your soul into the world around you. You will naturally see uh, that you are more capable uh, at the things that you do in your life because you focused on first principles. You focused on the fundamentals, which is that if anything is going to change in life, I better change first. And then it's going to be a natural process of change outside of me. You know, and this is the idea of the the stoic idea of the concentric circles, right? It's like, you know, you work on yourself. And then as you do that, you're definitely more capable of taking care of your family, taking care of your community, taking care of your country. Your influence certainly grows, but it all starts from an inward facing uh, journey of, of, you know, walking towards those higher aims of, of your inner world. And so anyway, I'm getting off track here. <laughs> I'm going off on a tangent. Ultimately, what Seneca is, uh, why Seneca is sharing this uh, quote from Epicurus is to show that, you know, when it comes to wealth, you can either get more wealth or you can subtract from your desires to have that wealth. You get the same results, but by one way, it's going to require a lot of toil. It's going to require a lot of work, a lot of effort. By the other way, it's something that you can actually work on right now and you can get that feeling. And isn't it funny how we as human beings grasp after so much in the external world in order to get a feeling that we might actually be able to get by doing some internal work within ourselves? You know, how much do do we how much time do we spend in life grasping after these material goods uh, simply because we are afraid, we're acting out of fear, we're acting out of a feeling of insecurity, a feeling of a lack of worth, like we need to feel significant. And, you know, the interesting thing is that a lot of that is stuff that we can work on within ourselves. A lot of that is stuff that we can find by going on that inward path of, of personal growth and personal understanding of knowing yourself. And so moving on, there's a really interesting and beautiful moment uh, coming up here towards the end of the letter where Seneca actually kind of goes into battle for Epicurus and defends the Epicurean tradition uh, against those people who have misunderstandings about it. And so one thing that we often hear as a misunderstanding of Epicureanism, I know that I certainly um, have, have fallen prey to this misunderstanding, is that it's all about, you know, 
hedonistic pleasure. Uh, and that is certainly not the uh, the tradition. And Epictetus, li- sorry, Seneca likes to uh, point that out here uh, in the view to to show that, you know, a lot of people who misquote and misuse the doctrines of Epicureanism uh, really are just using it to hide uh, or to mask their own uh, insufficiencies in their character. So he says the following, quote, I'm all the more glad to repeat the distinguished words of Epicurus, in order that I may prove to those who have recourse to him through a bad motive, thinking that they will have in him a screen for their own vices, that they must live honourably, no matter what school they follow. Go to his garden and read the motto carved there. It says, Stranger, here you will do well to tarry. Here our highest good is pleasure. The caretaker of that abode, a kindly host, will be ready for you. He will welcome you with barley meal and serve you water also in abundance. With these words, have you not been well entertained? This garden, he says, does not whet your appetite, it quenches it. Nor does it make you more thirsty with every drink. It slakes the thirst by a natural cure, a cure that demands no fee. This is the pleasure in which I have grown old, end quote. And so here you see and you get the sense that what Seneca is trying to point out is that the, the pleasure that they are seeking, right, is not the kind of, you know, hedonistic pleasure that you might expect. You know, you're not going to go to this garden and find them just having endless orgies and eating, eating all the food that they want and just going wild, right? It's not that kind of pleasure. It's the kind of pleasure that the natural pleasure that comes from, uh, you know, giving your body what it naturally needs, right? And, and following the natural course of life, which is why you'll go there and they'll give you a simple meal of barley meal, right? And they'll give you water and they'll say, haven't you been entertained? Haven't you been pleased, right? Uh, and and, and the, then he talks about this idea that this natural pleasure, right, is not the kind that leaves you even more desirous once you have been quenched, right? Which is what many of the desires that we seek uh, often will do but rather it takes away your thirst, it takes away your hunger with a natural cure that demands no fee. And it's not expensive, you know, and it's not overbearing, and it's not going to leave you feeling disgusting afterwards, and it's not going to leave you with all kind of headaches and hangovers. No, this is just, it's a place where you would go to learn how to find pleasure in the natural course of life and in the natural desires uh, that have not been perverted uh, by our kind of hedonistic lifestyles. And so Seneca goes on to talk about this. He says, in speaking with you, however, I refer to those desires which refuse alleviation, which must be bribed to cease. For in regard to the exceptional desires, which may be postponed, which may be chastened and checked, I have this one thought to share with you. A pleasure of that sort is according to our nature, but it is not according to our needs. One owes nothing to it. Whatever is expended upon it is a free gift. The belly will not listen to advice. It makes demands. It opportunes. And yet it is not a troublesome creditor. You can send it away at small cost, provided only that you give it what you owe, not merely all that you are able to give. 
And so here we can see that Seneca is pointing out that the natural desires really do not require all that we stuff into them, right? So you can think about this in the, in the example of, uh, of the food and the, and the belly that he's talking about, right? Where he's saying that, listen, when you're hungry, right, of course... Your belly is going to cry out to you. It's going to be there and it's going to ask for something. But the difference is, you know, it it doesn't actually require much. It doesn't require much to be satiated. Whereas what we often do is we will just stuff it full of stuff, right? And and, and kind of like what Bukowski, the poet, said, it's like people don't go into restaurants because they're hungry. They go in there because it's time to eat. And so what Seneca is trying to point out by way of Epicurus's teachings as well is that we need to unlearn all of these unnatural desires uh, that we have, which are constantly seeking to overdo uh, our natural needs. And we need to learn what it feels like to just have a natural need uh, and a natural fulfilling of those needs, which is another reason why Seneca recommends practicing poverty. It's like you'll learn what it actually feels like to be hungry and you'll learn how little you need to actually uh, fulfill the needs of that hunger. Uh, we, we just, we overcomplicate our lives by packing stuff around us, get more stuff, get more food, get more, you know, whatever it is. We just need more, more, more. Uh, Seneca is saying we need to unlearn all of that stuff. It's not healthy and it's getting in the way of your own personal internal progress as well. So all interesting ideas, all things to wrestle with in your own life. I hope that you've taken a few uh, tidbits of wisdom away from this. And I hope that you do some meditation on your own desires in your life. Uh, You know, when you eat, do you eat to quench your hunger or do you eat uh, to satisfy your most animal desires to pack away food for the future just in case there's none tomorrow? Uh, That's a real question to think about, right? When you uh, find yourself saying, I need this, question yourself. Is that something that you really need? Is that a natural need that human beings have? Or is it just that you want it? See, this is the kind of internal honesty that we're all seeking here through philosophy. And uh, and certainly, I hope that you've uh, taken a few things away from this episode today that can help you with that. So anyway, again, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>